Howdy, my name is Sydney, and welcome to episode three of Answering the Call, Conversations with Practitioners. Today, I am honored to be joined by my guest, Ambassador Sichon Siv. Ambassador Siv has had a fascinating life. His story begins by escaping Cambodia's killing fields in 1976 during Pol Pot's reign of terror. He was able to flee to the U.S., where he started a new journey and worked his way into the upper echelons of the U.S. government. Ambassador Siv served as President George H.W. Bush's deputy assistant from 1989 to 1993. From 2001 to 2006, he served as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Economic and Social Council. Today, Ambassador Siv is a member of the Texas Board of Criminal Justice. He has written two books, Golden Bones, An Extraordinary Journey from Hell in Cambodia to a New Life in America, which I just read this weekend and highly recommend to all of our listeners, and Golden State, a political thriller about a president mired in international crisis who seeks the help of a Texas cowboy. Ambassador Siv's story is a truly inspiring one, and I am so excited to be talking to him. Ambassador Siv, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me in your program. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. It was absolutely fascinating. I'd like to start by asking you some questions about your early childhood. You mentioned in your book that you were born in Pochintong, which you describe as a sleepy village of about 100 people. Can you describe your early childhood with your family in Cambodia? Well, this, uh, this is the time when Cambodia was still under the rule of uh, France, a colonial empire. So I grew up uh, speaking French and uh, eating French food. Uh, it was not until 1953 that uh, when Vice President Mrs. Nixon came to visit, uh, we were told uh, that there was another country much bigger and farther away uh, than France. It's called the United States of America. So until that time, I had no idea that there was uh, any other country but France. France was a symbol of civilization for us. Uh, everything was from France, for France, and of France. Um, you mentioned my native village. It's that's where the airport uh, is located until now. At the time, uh, everybody uh, who visited Cambodia would go through my village first because that's where they land their plane, and Vice President and Mr. Nissan didn't go there, he went to Timrip, because that's where he met the king. The king was, uh, at the time, King Sian uh, was being at Timrip. On October 31st, 1953, Cambodia became independent from France, just 10 days after he, uh, uh, he and Mr. Nixon visited. So uh, it's about seven miles from the main center of the capital, uh, two-lane road, you know, water. We had to fetch water from the nearby uh, pond. Uh, look for, we had to look for all, our own firewood. It wasn't until the 60s that oh, that village uh, received electricity, electricity power and the road was widened into a, a four-lane road. So it was really very peaceful, and I, my uh, my father was a police chief, so I came from a law enforcement family. But he died when I was nine years old, uh, so my mother brought me up. She knew that it was uh, important for me to have a good education. 
So she worked very hard to uh, send me to the best school in the kingdom. Uh, she worked very hard that one point she had to sell lotus leaves. Lotus, lotus leaves were used by uh, people in poor countries like Cambodia to wrap produce every day at the market. We didn't have refrigerators, so people uh, bought fresh produce, which was very good. So those produce were wrapped in lotus leaves. Uh, after I finished high school, I, uh, I think I went so I think this is how my childhood, uh, my childhood uh, began. You're transitioning perfectly into my next question, actually, about your life in the 60s. You talk about how it's a decade of new horizons for you because you became, in your own words, a bookworm, an armchair traveler, and a political spectator, and you became an avid fan of American history. Can you talk about your time in high school and... What drew you to, you know, wanting to study history? Well, the libraries were certainly the most important institution uh, for us, especially for me, because that's where I learned about the outside world. Because I um, already spoke French, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, reading all books that I could get in French, even the history of America. Geography of the United States, I read everything in France. I watched all American movies in French and uh, fast forward to the time I was at the White House. Uh, we were invited by the French ambassador to a reception where Kirk Douglas was there. You remember Kirk, Kirk Douglas? Yes, great actor. Great actor. So I, uh, my wife uh, Martha and I went to say hello to him. And I, I'm a big fan of you. Uh, I... Uh, enjoy all your movies but I did not know you spoke French so well <laughs> and he said I didn't know it either so that's uh, that tells you the influence of French culture on everything but anyway uh, I mentioned briefly about the libraries uh, that's where I spent more of the time reading reading and reading that's what, uh, that's what I learned about the outside world and uh, when I uh, came here when I met uh, my future wife, she happened to be a librarian. So that's how I learn about the outside world. It's just reading, reading, reading. And you also were the first in your family to go to college, correct? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, I was the first uh, to go to college and I went uh, to Faculty de Lettres, which is like the liberal arts college. So I had uh, so a dual degree in liberal arts and also uh, in, in law. Very interesting. And were you also teaching at the same time while you were in college? Yes, I first uh, I went to the teacher's college. I got a teaching degree and I taught high school. I taught high school English. Uh, we call English the foreign language because Cambodia already a French speaker, so English would be a foreign language. But by that time, I spoke uh, English quite fluently. After I finished high school, I went to work for an airline, the only airline in Cambodia. And I traveled all over East Asia. I went to China, the Cultural Revolution, uh, to Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia, and Indonesia, and so on and so forth. So just a uh, pause here that uh, what I saw in China in 1960, it was just unbelievable. And there was there was no shoot on the streets uh, because everybody was uh, working in the in the fields. 
later on, some years later, when I went back, it was only bicycles. And some years later, I went back, there were only motorcycles. And then just cars, cars, and cars. So China has taken a leap, uh, in a sense, uh, thanks to Nixon visit in 1972. In fact, if the president uh, didn't visit in 1972, China might be still uh, a backward country. Interesting. So you talked about you went in 1969 to China. I want to ask you about the early 70s in your life when we start to see conflict sort of beginning to unleash in your home country. During this time, we've got the Vietnam War. How were those international events impacting you back home in Cambodia? Thank you for asking the question. Uh, I went around the country and around the world to speak about hope and dreams and reality, especially the American dream. Uh, It's quite... uh, puzzling that not many people, especially younger generation, except your generation, because you are at a Bush school, so you're the best of the best, <laughs> uh, know about the Vietnam War. And third, a lot of people thought that the Vietnam War is just a war in Vietnam, but in fact, the war in three different countries. It's in Laos, in Cambodia, and in Vietnam, and we, we were all fighting against the communists. So the war broke out in 1970, and uh, at that time, I left my job as a teacher to uh, work for a relief organization because I saw so many deaths and destructions. Uh, children were killed, hospitals were bombed. I thought I would do something to help out. So by the mid-70s, I worked in very dangerous circumstances, trying to save the lives of hundreds and thousands of people who fled the war-torn countryside. Uh, to seek safety and shelters in the capital of Phnom Penh and in the provincial city. Uh, the United States knew that I would be in danger, so the U.S. Embassy told me that when the time came, I would have to give one hour to be at the U.S. Embassy if I wanted to be airlifted up to Cambodia. And that time came on April 12, 1975, just two days after President Ford gave an address to the joint session of Congress. Uh, he said at the time, uh, for this administration, the time is short and the options are few as far as Cambodian and Vietnam are concerned. So two days later, on April 12, 1975, I was told that morning by the U.S. Embassy to be at the embassy within one hour if I wanted to be lifted out of Cambodia. I uh, had a meeting with the governor of province uh, to help care for some 3,000 refugee families that were stranded in his province. And I thought that by going to the meeting, I would be able to save the lives of uh, those unfortunate people. When I came to the embassy, I was told that the last uh, helicopter had been off 30 minutes before. So I missed the U.S. helicopter by 30 minutes. You mentioned April 12th, and then in your book, you talk about April 17th, 1975, when Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge forces captured the Cambodian capital and overthrew the Khmer Republic. Can you walk us through that day, April 17th, 1975? Yeah, that, um, that morning I went to uh, uh, work just like an irregular day, and, and then I started... Uh, 
hearing people shouting, cheering, because the Khmer Rouge were walking into the city. The, uh, the government of Cambodia laid down their arms, so a lot of people thought that the, the war would bring peace, but not so. So then the uh, panic came, but they told us three days uh, uh, we could come back, but not so. It was just a lie. So we brought, were able to bring with us. Uh, I met with my brother and the rest of the family, and 16 of us uh, left. So it took us uh, about two weeks to get to the village of our ancestor, and that's where the killing began. So my, my, my mother knew. Uh, killed uh, because I worked for an American organization. I would be a danger to everyone, so she asked me to leave. She said that no matter what happens, never give up hope. And then I uh, rode a bicycle for three weeks across Cambodia using fake passes and false excuses to get uh, through the checkpoints. I was uh, captured in Thailand. Uh, they tied my arms behind my back and they're going to kill me. But the uh, a truck driver whom I had met a few days before saying my life, he told the Khmer Rouge that I was just an innocent person uh, wandering around looking for my family. So two weeks after the war, I was separate from my mother, my sister, my brother, their children, 15 of them, who I later learned five years later they were all killed. How did you how did you find the strength to overcome something like that? It was like your whole world had been flipped on its side. I can't even imagine. That, uh, those words that my mother told me, uh, no matter what happens, never give up hope. So I uh, one of uh, what the topics of my presentation uh, is usually entitled "Hope and Heaven." That's the American dream in first person. So in the very bad situation, that's the only thing you have left. If you don't have any hope, you will not go any farther. How long did your journey take to escape to Thailand? What was that like for you? Well, it, uh, it took me about a year. Uh, after 30 minutes of uh, missed evacuation, it took me one year through the jungle through the through the hunger so one year of uh, i call the year of the bloody peace because that was a year that really cambodia was turned into a land of blood and tears into the killing fields we were put to work uh, 18 hours a day we were given a bowl of rancid soup a day to eat at night when i went to sleep i never knew if i would be alive the following morning i woke up i said i would make it to freedom so uh, it was a very important month for me because these are a very important date, February the 13th. So February the 13th, 1976, I, uh, well, I found myself alone in the back of the timber truck. And I could not jump to the left uh, because the driver would have seen me. I could not jump to the right because the Khmer Rouge with an AK-47 would have seen me through the rear mirror. So I... What I did was I crawled on top of the timber all the way to the back. As I was tumbling down, I was caught in a piece of lumber and I was dragged for a few hundred yards until I was flung off. Then I began to run, to crawl, to walk for three days, having nothing to eat. 
or to drink or nothing to guide me except the sun, the stars and the moon. I fell in the booby trap, I was severely wounded. Uh, and the booby trap is a deep hole full of punchy sticks that would catch the victims at the stomach or the heart. But I was all for a chameleon, so the stick hit me in my legs. I was uh, severely wounded, but I was able to pull myself up. I blimped along until I got to Thailand, where I was jailed for illegal entry. The Thais realized that I was a refugee. They sent me to refugee camp. There, I spent a few months teaching English to fellow refugees that were sitting around all day, feeling sorry and worrying about the future. So English classes were a win-win proposal because they were able to keep their minds of the worries and the sorrows, and they were able to get some basic English before they would go to their adopted countries, English-speaking countries. Wow. So you were teaching English in Thailand. How did you end up making it to the United States? Well, uh, for in the 70s, uh, in order to come to the United States, you had to be sponsored by a family, by a church, by an organization. I was sponsored by a family in Wallingford, Connecticut. I did not know them. They didn't know me. They went to school, to college with one of my uh, colleagues uh, where I worked uh, before the war. So out of the goodness of heart, they uh, sponsored me. And uh, I was interviewed by UNAPR and they put me on the list. And I arrived in Wallingford, Connecticut, at the home of Bob and Nancy Charles with my mother's cup, an empty rice bag, and two dollars. And that was one month before June 4th, 1976. Can you describe what your initial moments were like in the United States after being in Cambodia for your whole life? Well, I mean, the ride from uh, New Haven, I was flown to New Haven. I took a taxi because all the buses stopped running and I had $15 in my pocket. And the fare was for $13. So I had $2 left because uh, the driver wouldn't take the tip. He said, you need these, uh, you need these $2 better than I do. So I was wanted to be a truck driver. And as we said, the Lord had it a, diff- a different way. They, he sent me to the White House instead of uh, <laughs> letting me drive the, the truck. So everything was so big, so fast, so uh, just so beautiful. The first few months I picked apples in Connecticut. I ate a lot of apples, enough to last for a long time. Then I worked at a restaurant. I ate in a hamburger in my life. I was holding the letters and the trainer said, hold the letters. It took me a while to understand she didn't want me to put the letters on the hamburger. So that's kind of cultural uh, cultural uh, shock to me. But I just kept on doing everything. I went to New York in January 1977. I uh, saw all these yellow checker caps with signs the back drivers wanted. So I called, they asked me to uh, go and take a test. It also, it's all about directions. How do you get from one place to another? For example, get from 
Madison Square Garden to Yankee Stadium, I had no idea where the places were. But at the end, I brought the sheet to the examiner. He looked at the boxes. He frowned. He looked at me. He shook his head. Uh, he said, you passed. <laughs> so I became a taxi driver. In New York City. In New York City. Wasn't that kind of chaotic? It was actually, Manhattan is actually very easy to get around because it's all square, you know, east, west, north, south. Mm -hmm. But Queens, Brooklyn, and, uh, and and the Bronx and Staten Island, that, that's very difficult because the streets are uh, going in different directions. So you came to the U.S. and then you were a taxi driver in New York and then you ended up going to Columbia University eventually to get your Master of International Affairs degree. How did you end up there? Well, it was uh, another stroke of luck uh, because I applied to a number of schools. They all turned me down. I had no transcripts. But Columbia offered me a full scholarship. Uh, not only that, they asked me to start right away. And I think in, in, in a year and a half, and then I went to work uh, in Wall Street for my organization. I want to ask you about how you got into politics and national security and everything of the like, you started to volunteer for George H.W. Bush's presidential campaign in the late 80s. And there's a great moment in your book where you're talking about you attended his inauguration, not realizing that you would be working for him just a few weeks later. How did you end up becoming President Bush's deputy assistant? Well, it was just a... Uh... Curiosity, in a sense, uh, as uh, we talk about growing up in Cambodia, I was always curious about uh, the outside world in, in days out in the library, National Library of Cambodia. And this is another aspect of curiosity. When I arrived in 1976, there was an action between uh, President Ford and Governor Jimmy Carter. I was watching and I saw these people wearing funny hats, uh, jumping up, screaming, shouting. I didn't stand, understand what was going on. My host family told me that these are delegates at a political convention. Uh, they are going to choose two people, and we are going to elect one of the two to become the next United States. And they turned to me and said, if you want to know this country, you need to get involved. So my chance to Ball was in 1988. Just uh, going back a little bit, uh, uh, one year after arriving in New York, I met uh, a wonderful woman named Martha Patillo from Pampa. I don't know whether you heard Pampa, Texas. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yes, I have. You, you're a good traveler. So for the interest of everyone listening, uh, Pampa, 60 miles northeast of Amarillo. Uh, I said in the book, uh, you remember, that the place where heaven and earth hug each other, that's where wind grows, oil flows, and wind blows. So Martha was a very accomplished person. Uh, she was valedictorian of high school. She had a Master of Library in Science from UT, the same degree as uh, Mrs. Bush, Laura Bush, but different years. She said that I was going to see the world. So she went to Paris, uh, she got a job in the United Nations, and they sent her to Bangkok. 
to Thailand. So at that time, we were only a few hundred miles from each other. She was in Thailand, I was in Cambodia. That was towards the end of the war. It wasn't until 1977 uh, that uh, we met through a friend. Uh, after we met, she just opened new horizons for me. She showed me how to, uh, to see, listen to hear, love to give and live to serve. For serving others is serving God and country. So with Martha on my side, I just continued to do everything that came my way to the best of my ability and my curiosity never faded away. The chance to do that was 1988. We were, we were both living in New York uh, at the time. And uh, I, uh, we were introduced to the Reagans uh, at one the reception and we began to receive uh, invitation from the Reagan White House. On July 13, uh, 1988, I was the dice guest of President Reagan and Vice President Bush at the, in the Rose Garden. And while I was standing there with the President and Vice President of the United States, the thought never crossed my mind that I would be working at the White House a few months later. So, as you mentioned, I already volunteered in the Bush campaign because I was just curious. And uh, decided to go to inauguration, and that's when uh, I did not know that my name was already on the list. On January 20th, uh, January 21, I called and said I should go to the White House. Begin feeling informed, begin feeling informed. When I got to the White House, I saw my name already on the telephone directory. It was quite amazing. So uh, you can tell uh, how uh, emotional it was for me because when I walked in to work at the White House, it was February the 13th, 1989, exactly 13 years from the day I jumped out that truck in the jungle of Cambodia. So to make it that far in such a short time could uh, happen only in, in, in America. And that was a great tribute to uh, George Bush, a great tribute to America. That's incredible. And I see you also, you have his portrait behind you. You've got the cowboy hat on as well. So it's perfect. Thank you. You returned to Cambodia in 1992 with the administration after it had played such a big role in the peace process there. Can you describe what it was like going back to Cambodia after so many years? It's another emotional return. Uh, President Bush knew that, so he sent me a handwritten note. He said, call me when you get back. I want to hear, I want to have a full debrief on what uh, I'm sure will be an emotional return. Emotional uh, because I was running for my life in 1976 through the jungle of Cambodia. And now, I mean, then in 1992, I was returning to Cambodia as a, an assistant to the President of the United States in the US government aircraft. It was quite, quite emotional. I, the country changed uh, drastically. The peaceful atmosphere that I saw was no longer there. And I mentioned uh, that I was born not too far from the airport. So I landed at that very old airport. He was a flight attendant and I took off and flew and I could recognize my house. But I, this time I couldn't recognize it. 
So it was it was quite an emotional uh, return, and uh, it was so sad uh, because I went to the village uh, where they killed my whole family, uh, my mother, my sister, my brother, and their children. And we had a uh, sort of memorial service there, but uh, it was uh, in a sense closing the chapter, except that this is a normal closure because. Uh, it's just two extremes of life, uh, running through the jungle and returning as an assistant to the President of the United States. I want to ask you about, in 2001, you are unanimously confirmed by the Senate and appointed by President George W. Bush as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Economic and Social Council. What was this career like for you? Well, uh, the the... The one important word that you uh, you mentioned is unanimous. You can no longer get unanimous uh, confirmation right now. And uh, in both times when I worked for President George H. W. Bush, and then for George W. Bush, uh, the Congress control at least one house, the Senate, were controlled by the uh, by the Democrat like opposition party. And I was uh, lucky, I was blessed to be unanimously confirmed by a democratic control uh, Senate. Um, and I should point out that at the time, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee was none other than Joe Biden. Being an ambassador is a, a tremendous responsibility, especially ambassador to the United Nations, because you have sort of triple responsibility. Uh, we co-founded the United Nations. Uh, New York is the world's largest uh, diplomatic community, and we, the United States, uh, is the largest benefactor to many United programs, United Nations programs, from cradle to coffin, from children to aging to everything in between, you know, HIV, AIDS, uh, food crisis, uh, human rights, women, health and education, etc., so we are doing all of this uh, not to be popular. We are doing it because we are Americans, because it is our duty to honor our country, and we are a compassionate society. So we uh, we are always uh, in demand uh, to meetings uh, because uh, we are the uh, permanent member of the UN Security Council, so we have the veto power. And I took a page from... Uh, George H.W. Bush, when he was ambassador there in the 70s, he was ambassador there from 71 to 73, uh, he established enormous personal relationship with foreign ambassadors. He would take them to the Yankee Games, he would take them to Broadway show, etc. And I, I did the same thing. I uh, would take them to uh, the show, I would... Uh, take them to West Point Academy uh, to see the military academy. I would call them to wish them on their national days. I remember I had a, a piece of paper that lists all the national holidays. Uh, so every morning I look at what day is it? Is it uh, nationally Papua New Guinea? I would call the ambassador of Papua New Guinea, ask him to go for a cup of coffee. No agenda, nothing, just to find out how was his tennis game, how were his children doing, and so on and so forth. So that kind of personal relationship uh, could go very far. 
when uh, you need something because unlike the UN Security Council, everybody has everybody has one vote. Whether you pay twenty two percent of the UN budget like the United States or zero point zero 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 two two percent, each country has the same vote. And also the fact that we uh, treat everybody equally give us quite a lot of credibility. And I don't want them to feel that we need them only when we need them, but uh, everybody's equal. So that is uh, George H. Bush, a page of diplomacy. I mean, he did an excellent job when he became ambassador to China, when he was director of the CIA, when he was VP, and then when he was uh, president. And you look back to the time under George Bush, our world has changed drastically. Uh, the Cold War ended. Not one shot was fired. So that's the kind of thing I, I learned from George Bush. And uh, you drink and you eat for your country. Because at breakfast, at lunch, at cocktail and dinner, there are always works. There are always work. If they want to talk to us, we want to talk to them. Uh, we want their support. They want our support. So it was a very good experience, and uh, I am blessed to be able to represent the United States of America and the American people. What was your biggest challenge in this role? Because I anticipate it was a very interesting time serving from 2001 to 2006 when the United States is beginning the war on terror. Can you talk about your biggest challenge serving as an ambassador to the UN during this time? Well, the, uh, the UN General Assembly uh, was supposed to open on September 11, 2001. So that's the date of the terrorist attack. Uh, so it was postponed for two months. It was not uh, open until November 10. And President Bush, just like all the presidents of the United States, uh, normally go to the United Nations to open session because we are the host country. We are always the first speaker uh, to open the session. And uh, the first six was all Afghanistan, 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 and then to Iraq. Uh, so we uh, we had quite a busy uh, agenda. So from September to December, we were very, very, very busy. And every year we would come up with a few issues that we was important. For example, human trafficking. I mean, President George W. Bush was the first head of state uh, to bring the issue of human trafficking to the world stage, to the United Nations. So human trafficking, uh, human rights, uh, counterterrorism, all these issues, uh, we need to keep uh, talking. And every year I would, sometime in August, the month before the General Assembly, I would travel to five eight countries to... Uh, bring all these issues uh, so that we can get support uh, at the United Nations. Talking about your life and work today, you now live in San Antonio, Texas. You're a member of the Texas Board of Criminal Justice. What has that been like for you, being in Texas and also being on the board? Well, I have a few other things. Uh, I have, I'm a deacon in my church, uh, First Presbyterian Church, and I have, I'm also a volunteer with the San Antonio Police Department. So I have uh, my full plate as well. The Texas Board of Criminal Justice is uh, overseeing the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, which is the best manager 
criminal justice system in the country, uh, the rate of recidivism is very low. It's uh, about 20% uh, compared to 40% in states like California. I always want to learn something new, and I would travel there 90 units in Texas, all the way from Dalhart, which is near Oklahoma, in the north uh, to the Mexican border in McAllen, and from Beaumont, near Louisiana, all the way to El Paso. I mean, it all spread out. And I learned uh, a lot, uh, not just from the very capable wardens, uh, correctional officers, but for the, from inmates. Uh, we have a program where inmates are trained in seminaries, uh, in Bible college. So I always enjoy spending time with them. It's just a blessing to be there, simply because I always say that blessed are those who love. For love is caring and sharing. Those who care, share. They who share, love. Your love waits for nothing. It gives and doesn't ask. So caring and sharing, uh, that's, uh, that's what I'm doing. In a church, I am a member of the Global Mission Committee. Uh, so we have uh, missions all over. I also travel around the world to donate motorcycles to pastors in remote villages. I was in Zambia in September, and Zambia, as you know, along with Zimbabwe, are at the bottom of the list, not just in alphabetical order, but also in livelihood. It's a very tough country, uh, and uh, I see that the Chinese are all over. We are, they are eating our lunch, and then they spy over us with a balloon. So we need to be a little bit more uh, proactive in uh, our security. But overall, I enjoy what I'm doing. And yesterday I went to the airport to do my uh, airport duty as a volunteer with the San Antonio Aviation Police. So I have a few things going on. And as I said, my plate is quite full. You mentioned China when you would travel. And I wanted to ask you what you see as the U.S.'s role in the world in this new era of strategic competition with China, Russia, and other adversaries that we're facing. Well, first, we need to uh, remain strong, uh, too strong in the Lord and strong in other, other areas. This, is, this country, our country, was founded by people who believe in, uh, in, in, in the individual freedoms. And most of the founding fathers, they are all religious people. They are Presbyterian, they are Christian, they are really faithful in their, in their faith. Uh, we are blessed to be the strongest country, uh, to be the greatest nation, to be unique. Texas is very unique. And you and I can agree uh, very easily on that one. Now, $2 trillion economy, Texas is the ninth largest in the world. Larger than Canada, larger than Russia, Australia, larger than Brazil. And not many people realize that. So we must have something right. So I wanted Texas to be the model of the United States of America. And today is Texas Independence Day. Uh, that's why I am wearing a Rangers hat, uh, which we celebrate the bicentennial of the Texas Rangers uh, when Stephen Austin uh, came to Texas to settle 300 people, he thought that it would be a good idea to establish a law enforcement organization. 
to protect uh, these settlers. So that's how the rangers came about, 200 years in 1823 and uh, 2023. I'm proud to be on the Bicentennial Committee with uh, President George W. Bush and a few others. Back to the United States, I, I, I wish that the United States would follow Texas. If uh, we uh, did everything right, uh, remain strong and engage, engage, and engage, nobody can operate alone. And I don't know what the administration is doing, and I am not privy to classify information, so I cannot comment. Uh, I would not wait for my balloon to fly across the United States to shoot it down. I just wish them uh, they would react sooner and they would uh, continue to engage more. That's all I can comment on uh, on what's going on. Uh, that would not happen with George H. Bush. Well, I have one last question for you. You have had such an incredible journey from conquering seemingly insurmountable odds to having such a prolific public service career. One of our mantras here at the Bush School is that public service is a noble calling. I wanted to ask you if you had any words of advice for Bush School students as they prepare to embark on careers in public service. That's a very good question. And uh, the first year I got to the White House, President Bush said in 1989, any definition of a successful life must service to others. And I sort of uh, paraphrase that when I would say to young people, be flexible, adapt to difficult circumstances. Follow your passion. When you do well, don't forget to do good. But some of you have done good already, but just continue to do good. The world, the world is your oyster, but make sure you use the right fork. <laughs> And, and, and that's important, uh, never never give up hope, no matter what happened, uh, like my mother told me. So never miss a chance to serve and never miss a chance to follow your passion. Well, Ambassador, thank you so much for joining me. It was an honor to speak to you. I mean, your story, it's just so inspirational and I really just can't thank you enough for joining us. It is my pleasure and a privilege go out and change the world. You go nowhere by accident. Where you go, God sends you there. Where you are, God places you there. I was supposed to be, I want to be a truck driver. And then I ended up working in the White House. By the way, I get my commercial driver's license. <laughs> so I did become a truck driver. It just took me a long time to get my CDL. So follow your passion and best of luck.